The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Tom York and Stanley Donwood on their collaborative art, Wayne McGregor on his new choreographic work, a collaboration with the late Carmen Herrera, and Whistler's mother returns to Philadelphia. Ahead of an exhibition of their work in London in September, I talked to Radiohead's Tom York and Stanley Donwood, who's created the artwork with York for every Radiohead album since 1994, as well as the visuals accompanying Tom's solo records and side projects, including the recent records by The Smile, about their collaboration. A new work by the choreographer Wayne McGregor premieres at the Royal Opera House in London on the 9th of June, a collaboration with the Cuban-American artist Carmen Herrera, developed before Herrera's death last year at the age of 106. I talked to McGregor about the piece. And this episode's Work of the Week is Arrangement in Graham Black, better known as Whistler's Mother by James Abbott McNeil Whistler. I talked to Jenny Thompson from the Philadelphia Museum of Art about the work. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Art Newspaper by visiting our website and clicking the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. You can choose from a digital, complete or student subscription. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With. And do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, this coming September, the Tin Man Art Gallery at Cromwell Place in London will host an exhibition called The Crow Flies, featuring recent collaborative works by Tom York and Stanley Donwood. It's the latest exhibition of work by the duo, whose collaborative projects date back to 1994, when York invited his art college friend Donwood, whose real name is Dan Rickwood, hence you'll hear Tom refer to him as Dan throughout, to do the artwork for Radiohead's releases for the Benz album. Since then, the pair have worked together on the visuals for every Radiohead album, and York's side projects from his 2006 solo album The Eraser to recent releases by The Smile, the band York formed with Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead and Tom Skinner, the drummer from Sons of Kemet. Paintings relating to The Smile's first record, A Light for Attracting Attention and other aspects of the project will be on view in the September show and I spoke to Tom and Stanley about the works and nearly 30 years of collaboration. Tom and Stanley, this exhibition relates to the paintings made for The Smile album. I understand there's a bit of a shift in the way that you work in terms of the balance. Is it right that normally, Stanley, you get last dibs, as it were, and and you complete the works, but whereas this time it's much more of a kind of... Oh, no. No. I don't know. Yeah. No, this is just... This is a bit more uh, collaborative. Sort of all, all the way through the painting process. That was partly down to the fact it was the pandemic when we started doing it and we were locked in space together partly because we made this choice to use gouache a paint that we'd not used before there was there's loads of reasons behind it we had a space that we was a very small space that we could work in and it just ended up being like a a very sort of uh, something that we would normally do in other ways but we were just purely doing physically onto canvas the process yes. that we'd normally go through of like heckling each other yeah exactly and we, there would be a, an idea that whatever we were making would go through various digital processes normally yeah yeah normal, sort of like that's what's happened in the past but you know in, in various different ways I'm really interested in that, the, the fact that the shift was much more of a material one and it relates to gouache, which is gouache dries well, yeah, extremely quickly. Yeah, but it stays active. Yeah. And that was so exciting. Yes. I was really into that. So we we started looking at some very old maps that were made by a, an Arabic pirate around the sort of our medieval time. We studied a lot of different ones, and we, yeah. that was one that we kept coming back there to. Was, there was a lot of old sort of yeah medieval paintings. There was a very early one of of the islands of Britain. Which is very beautiful. Which oh, the green shows, ones, yeah, yeah they're amazing. Shows the sort of the source or the springs of rivers, the sort of dots. Then the river flows out to the to the ocean. So we were looking at these, and and I was very interested in how they were made. So they were a lot of them were painted on vellum, and with egg tempera and sometimes gold leaf. So uh, kind of went back to tempera gouache and. and gold leaf to see what happened and uh, 
absolutely beautiful colours because some of the pigments have been not, not changed since before you know, oil paint was invented. So. And so was that sort of luminosity that you get with gouache paints important, Tom? I mean, yes. I, honestly, it's not like whenever we'd worked before, we sat in a room together and painted and that's all we'd done. This was the first time we'd really actually just done that. We sort of removed the sort of protracted layout, cutting, editing process completely from things and just said whatever we commit to physically on this canvas is going to be the front cover the back cover the inside and that and that's it which was a restriction which was exciting and quick and sort of joyful for want of a better way of putting it but also there was a sort of other side to it which was just the appeal because the context is not primarily the finished canvases the context is to make a record cover right. and the, there's something very appealing about the sense that when you pick up i mean for example you know like the first small record you can see each brushstroke and you, you can see, see the, the weave physicality of the canvas of it, mm. yeah. um, which was something that, that was another a really good reason why we wanted to go down that route i think yeah and you like restrictions don't you and there's a quote that i read i think from you tom where you said you like making things as difficult as we can uh, I mean, oh, that's why. Yeah, okay. That's, yeah. It's no. not deliberate. It's not like you're you're trying to tie yourselves in knots, but you have a starting point. I personally find the open-ended nature of kind of digital artwork a bit problematic because you don't know when to stop. With paint, there's a limit to what you could do with it. With print, there's a limit to what you could do with it. So, for the text part of the Smile project, we used um, some really old, I think it's like turn of the 19th, 20th century woodblock type. And it's, it's really ugly. It's like the ugliest woodblock font I've ever seen. We were trying to make something that was, had typographically something of the ethos of Jamie Reed's hostage note style stuff for, for you know, Sex Pistols famously. Right. But done in a, in a woodblock style. So it was all done, you know, on, on an old press. And then this was for the record then superimposed really massive in a kind of fuck off kind of way over this quite beautifully luminous tempera gouache gold leaf painting talk about restrictions is like we start off with a concept and then have to in the process of saying let's try and sort of create a topographic kind of mind map thing around you know because that's what was a appealing about the maps that we were looking at and so on we really pretty much jettisoned this whole thing of the maps at all and it just become an exploration in movement and an exploration of what the paint was doing and telling us to do and blah 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 all that sort of stuff you know just enjoying the process which was very much the same as making the record it was just enjoying the process and not turning back or chasing our tail too much just seeing where that went i mean you have to also remember, like, it's the same for everybody, but there was a novelty at, the, at that point in even being together because it was the pandemic and we'd have to both yeah, test beforehand tests, and we yeah. couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. So we're locked Very away in the house, time. not doing anything else. But there was a kind of excitement yeah. in that. Like, so you could do that much. Yeah. It's interesting, and then you produce very physical work and eschewing digital yeah, material, I've if you like. Yeah, kind of... I was, a, I was a really early adopter of the internet and digital media generally, but I, I kind of can't stand it now. I'm really bored of it. It's really boring. All the stuff about AI, I'm oh, kind of bored of it. And then NFTs came along and I'm kind of, oh, oh my God. It's just like, oh, fuck off and get a pencil or something. Yeah, <laughs> NFTs, that really produced some excellent results. Oh, it? yes. <laughs> Yeah, some work. really worthy work came out of that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really interesting because I know that for the OK Computer cover, yeah, you, that was you were already subverting the digital, weren't you? You, you, you? Because you were saying, we are denying the process of erasure, which is so central to that kind of digital... I suppose, maker. yeah, that, to erase something completely is, is, a, is something you can... Can you do it digitally? I mean, you can, apparently. But in any other sort of drawing media, you can't. It always leaves some sort of evidence. I don't know. We've definitely, definitely deleted stuff that was really bad. <laughs> but it, honestly, sometimes the really bad stuff is still useful. 
that idea of keeping the mistakes or keeping things which aren't erased puts me in mind of oblique strategies. And through reading what you've said about your work, the oblique strategies developed by Brian Eno and Peter Schmidt were these cards that you would take in no need well. of... Yeah. It strikes me that that's a very similar thing. By setting rules, by setting restrictions, you can impose kind of structures which aid the creative process through difficulty. Or... I don't like to think of it as rules. It's, it's more like I've kind of come to the way that I do make art... There were always restrictions in, in the past, to, due to you know what what was accessible and what you could afford or what what you you know what you had access to. So and I've kind of found that quite useful, the idea of there being a, a huge spectrum of all the colours in the world that you could use is is quite difficult because we did start with we bought a lot of paint and we ended up using kind of a handful of them really. There's, there's not actually the, your palette that you use ends up, even if you've got access to everything, it ends up being quite limited just by trial and error, really, I think. Restriction maybe isn't quite the right word. It's more like we, we usually kind of like have a jumping off point and just about enough faith in ourselves to know that wherever that jumping off point isn't going to be where we think it is and we just start and we don't really assess what we're doing and we don't know where we're going and we don't know where we're and going we don't know where we're very up. much like it's the same as working with other musicians working in the band it's the same thing where you you start with very little and you just keep going until something appears that that makes sense to you or actually maybe you don't know it makes sense until yeah, later in terms of that balance between the collaborative nature of music and the collaborative nature of the art that you make I'm interested by this idea of location being important, that you actually go to the studio, Stanley, and that he's yeah. there, Tom, and you're able to then chip in. Can you tell me something about... about? Well, OK, yeah, got a good recent one. So Tom says, we're going we're gonna to be recording in, in Abbey Road for a couple of weeks. I'm like, what, Abbey Road? Yeah, 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 like, like where the Beatles were and everything. With the zebra crossing? Yeah. <laughs> OK, so we're going to paint in, in Abbey Road. So one of, one of the rooms, we turn into a, into a painting studio. And um, I've finally figured out that how to get these ideal canvases made. So it's fine weave linen, raw linen, transparent size on it, ready to start painting. And I order a, a whole load of these and get them delivered to Abbey Road. And then I arrive in Abbey Road with all my painting stuff and everything, set up the room, dust sheets everywhere, it's all ready. Floor to ceiling dust sheet. I have to build two easels flat pack, put them together, which is kind of, you know, comedy. And then there's just these huge blank canvases and... Ah. <laughs> yeah. Oh you, you had one sheet of A4 and I had one sheet of A4 <laughs> and that's it. That's all we had. We I had, had yeah, we no, had very little. No idea. But... There, some big so speakers. We, we, we put big speakers, so there was an a audio feed in from the, the recording studio. Big screen up so I could see, I could watch what was going on as well. And we just kind of started. So the music's going on all the time. To start with, it was just paint a big blob, paint a big blue thing. And I spent ages painting, because I, I had this idea that I wanted to make work that was like a bad Jesus restoration. You know, like when they, in those churches... In one of those Spanish churches, Exactly, yeah. exactly. I'd just been in, in Literally. Barcelona. And I'd, I'd been to loads of art museums, Catalan art museums, photographing this medieval stuff. So I was trying to continue the work that we'd been doing with the first Smile record, but a departure. So I, I was doing this really fiddly, fiddly, fiddly stuff. And then Tom would come <laughs> in and just totally fuck it up. Like, <laughs> like absolutely loads of paint over it. And I was just like... Because ah, ha, ha, ha. I said, can you do it? But so are you, he, are you he literally standing there? Up. Are you literally standing there with paintbrush in hand yeah. when Tom comes along with his own paintbrush yeah, in hand yeah, yeah. and stands in front of you and makes these? Well, moves? alongside, they're quite I mean, big it's, canvases. It's civilized, so we can both sort. But so he completely—it's like he's—he's he's introducing the dereliction of several hundred years onto this. this I'm painting. the weather. He's the weather, and then I'm the bad Jesus restorer. So I come in and repaint what you can see not quite as well as I had before so the idea was that uh, I wanted to make artwork that looked like it had existed for a long time so there was a limit to how far you can take that in 
the time. short amount we had of time. Two weeks. So and that, well, in fact, that was back in middle of March, and now we're what beginning of June, and we've made ten pictures. I think it became something else very, very it quickly did as usual. Else. We both have the knack of of having a kind of pitch or whatever you might want to call it, but really, when it comes down to it, we just sort of basically get lost in what we're doing, and at some point, one of us taps us or the other on the shoulder, said, "That one's done now." Right, you know, yeah. that's always sort of been the case, actually. Yeah. Even when we're sitting yeah. in front of laptops using Photoshop, pro- processing yeah. layers and layers of random things, it's still the same process. It's, we both benefit from the other knowing when to stop or when to steer it another way or when to whatever medium it is. And that blank canvas that you were just talking about, you know, having a bare space sitting in front of you, is that always daunting or is it ever like a relish to get on with no it's always daunting no, it's exactly it's the same as music it's, it's always daunting but then with music there's always something you can reach for there's always some place you can start there's always an idea that you haven't tried yet there's always somewhere to go so I think actually painting is different in the, only in the sense that yes there is that moment at the beginning where you're like you really are terrified of your mistakes so it's good to start with one it's good to start with an accident mm. Mm. so you know if you just get something on there I mean I think sometimes I felt like almost like I'm just sort of throwing paint at a camp to stop it being this vacuum just to make a sound in it to, to, to so you've got something that but we're not abstract either that's what we're doing isn't expressionism it's not any of that I, I find it really weird I think it's always kind of been the same like we either obsess about objects or icons or figures or landscapes or but things just keep coming back and repeating and and I think or probably I do the same with lyrics as well where you know the patterns emerge or oh you're still talking about that <laughs> or keys or instruments or it's not devoid of any context yeah. at all. It strikes me, though, that even though it is not devoid of context and it is not abstract, you don't illustrate oh God, the music. No. no, yeah, I think we've sort of uh, almost reflexively kind of returned to the idea of narrative and landscape. And it's like I'm trying to always fight against it, but it keeps coming back. There's a limit to how long and how hard you can fight against it. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was art as a kind of liberation, because I know, Tom, that after OK Computer, you said that you turned to art as a means of escaping, I don't know if it was quite writer's block or musician's block, or... It was a a terrifying self-consciousness about, like, you know, if you do uh, enough interviews, you start believing the constructed nonsense that you put on top of the stuff that you didn't construct. Right. So you start to second guess too much. And that had sort of paralysed me in terms of like every time I picked up an instrument, or that's how it felt anyway. There'd be these voices going, oh shit, that's rubbish, you can't do that. <laughs> oh, you've already done that. Or what you said, you know, like literally analysis to the point where it was deafening. So choosing to work just walking and landscape and something simple where... It was creative, it was a response to something, but it wasn't involving any kind of analysis. It was like like a physical act, really. It was a physical response to being in... in, And and also kind of the the shock of... This was down in in Cornwall and on the moors, the shock of that desolation and um, how exciting that was and how having gone through such a mad period of travel and, and people being in my face just to be absolutely nowhere in the middle of an ancient landscape it was all those things together was a way of releasing this mad analysis that was going on in my head i've never had it that bad since thank god it did teach me that i enjoy the creative process in sort of lots of different ways i enjoy writing i enjoy music i enjoy art i enjoy just collaborating with people so i don't see much of a a war between any of it really and i'm feel myself very fortunate that I'm able to move between all those different things. I get the sense from the way that you're talking, for both of you, this collaboration is a sort of means of guarding against preciousness of one form or another, a kind of means of of circumventing any level of complacency. You're testing each other, you're stopping each other doing the obvious thing in a way. Yeah, I kind of 
broadly agree, I think, if I've understood you right. We offer two different ways yeah. of thinking about things yeah. a lot of the time. If left to myself, I kind of have a tendency towards a kind of neurotic, obsessive detailing or I don't know what it is, but but it's it's very Virgo, I think. <laughs> My girlfriend, she's always, for years, is just saying, just let go a bit, can't you? And like... And like so, it's it's kind of like like that's my right hand is like, eh. and, and my left hand wants to go a bit mental. But I mean, working with Tom, it's kind of. I have feels, no right hand. <laughs> he's just all left hand. Yeah. So yeah. I'm all right hand, and it's kind of like when he put the two together are better than either on their own. I think. And is it right that you even, complete, you even complete different tasks within the same picture? So yeah, is it, yeah, yeah. you're good yeah, at mountains, yeah, you're yeah, good yeah. at oceans? Or, Absolutely, you, know. you just, that's, that's it. With, with these particular How did you things, know? yeah. It's kind of funny, I mean, you know, yeah. it's kind of funny. Can that, you put some hills on that? Yeah. Like, clearly you're not very good at that, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think we've got a bit better at having a modicum of confidence in the fact that we might be able to draw and we might be able to paint. Because to start with, we totally just used photographic and found imagery even to the extent we didn't even use our own photographs we photographed tv screens and things like that so everything was found it was almost like so you couldn't be blamed for anything that was exactly what it was about yeah so all of okay computer there was no drawing in that i don't think apart from the sort of scribbling out of so it was all found stuff it was all imagery from somewhere else even just, you know, our own photographs sometimes. but And then they're scribbled out. But then there's a sort of limit to what you can express with that. So we kind of, like, left that behind a little bit with, with the next project. And they've got some massive canvases, like really big. Um, and then just painting with, with your whole arm, with the whole sleeve of your jumper and stuff like that, or actually using your whole energy that you have. Rather and, than just and your filling notebooks and, and yeah. endless, endless, endless yeah. biro drawing. This is, this, say, this is the kid a amnesia, yeah. Which is sort of, you know, it's sort of it's gone down almost in folklore as, as like the idiom of a difficult period for a band. Yeah. I mean, it was difficult only in the sense that we were really intimidated about where we'd been thrown. I think that 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 offered a certain kind of paralysis initially, and then once like our I like a long period of had gone. By. I mean, we, we, were, we were at it on and off pretty much for a whole year without stopping. When we started to look back at what we were doing in the course of that year, both, both you know, on tape and um, with the art yeah. and everything, it was kind of like, oh, actually, this is really exciting. The, the, mm. the crisis pushed us to overcompensate by just working pathologically yeah. without stopping. Yeah, because radio had become very well-known after OK Computer. Mm-hmm. And I think I kind of deliberately tried to ignore that, you know, not to kind of take any notice of that because it would have not been helpful to kind of like, you know, all of like what you're saying about too many interviews or something like that. I don't think it's very useful, that sort of thing. If you're trying to make some work, it doesn't help. In other words, you didn't buy into the media myth of what Radiohead was. You had, uh, to, no, you had no, to listen I'd... to what the band were doing in the studio. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Trying to consciously avoid the media because it's present company accepted load of bollocks isn't it <laughs> but also it seems to me that it was really important that and i don't know how actively this was happening but both the music your lyrics and the images that you were producing were clearly being massively informed by the news so the media in the sense of global events geopolitics and so on maybe i kind of like Maybe, yeah. There was odd things that, that would seep in, but it's always been like that. Yeah. I mean, we were working in a house, if we're talking about that period, for example, we were working in a house where there were bombers flying over to Bosnia yes, every night yeah. right. from yeah, yeah, yeah. Bryce Norton. From, yeah. That was weird. So you didn't need the news, actually. No. <laughs> Going overhead. Then the, the eraser was um, a response to being in a, f- a very, very bad flood which destroyed loads of houses yeah um, so that was the news but it was also real each period has got these kind of things i mean honestly i think that the smile the the first record of life for attracting attention was very much just a, our response to being in the pandemic yeah. it, it was like we 
didn't get to spend much time with each other, both recording and in terms of art. And when we did, we went nuts. Yeah. And we just did whatever we had because really that's fast, what we had. Working really um, fast. So I, th- I, I think it depends. Sometimes we deliberately adopt little bits and pieces, but I think always the objective is to unload what could look like loaded imagery. Right. Right? It's the same with the lyrics. I do the same with the lyrics where a lot of the time things that sound very emotional or whatever could just be cut and pasted from something I hear or or randomly, you know, walk into or blah, 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 or something on the TV, something on the radio, blah, blah. But I take it out of context. It's just one line. Mm -hmm. This stuff is important to me and this stuff I feel we all share, but Dan and I especially had a lot of that kind of thing through art school that was this idea of taking language and Mm. images and pulling them out of where they came from and saying something different with them or just allowing them to exist out of context um, and see what happens you know it was a very interesting time to go to art college at the end of the 80s and the early 90s Thatcher quits I remember we had a Thatcher quits party right that was quite good but yeah so there was definitely a lot going on and I think we'd come out of a time in the 1980s when when a lot the idea that art should be informed with politics and it was you know it was a time of the left was definitely in opposition as it is now yeah and art seemed to be the only and music. place art yeah art and music I was actually talking to my music. daughter about this because she's art been music studying with, with, British politics and yeah. British history and then Talking, she was asking that's about where the punk and post punk and yeah. the response to Thatcher. And, and I'm like, well, that really was the most overt period of left wing, well, not necessarily left wing culture, but culture reacting yeah. to what the directly to politics. When we became famous, there was a lot of like, to me, the opposite of that, yes, where politics that and culture coincided with very much like what happened to me, Brit- sort Brit- of like a mini, a poxy little mini version of what happened in America post-war with the adoption of a lot of the abstract artists and so on. It's like, oh, we need our own culture. Yeah. We'll have you lot. Yeah. Mm. Um, it was and they sort were co-opted of, into... Yeah, exactly. I think there was a lot of that with the, the Brit pop and the, the art stuff, yeah. the Saatchi Gallery and all that stuff. But it was all like serving a purpose in a way that I find very unpleasant. And the, and I didn't the art then anything. was, in sort of in the early, mid-90s, was, was, as far as I could tell, was resolutely non-political. It was kind of interesting, some of it, but it was very decorative for, for the times. Like things was, can only get better. And it was nice to be working. Things were in, good, in a, you know. It, it was nice to be working exclusively, making. I guess we didn't really maybe consider it art. We were hiding behind the fact that it was always record covers, so we didn't have to think yeah. of it like that. But at the same time, we were very much approaching it like this is an opportunity to be creative in, exactly. in, in however different as we possibly could and to be not exactly provocative but like humorous stupid sarcastic um nasty whatever and and political as well because it was i can kind of remember walking through london pushing my daughter in a pushchair and labor had just got in and it felt absolutely brilliant i'd never seen such a happy three months later my life it was amazing yeah and then fairly rapidly of course things unraveled and ended rather sadly for a lot of people. But um, the art that was known about, that was very visible at the time, was, as I say, it was like, we're not political. It was, you know, you know what it was. But we had this kind of somewhere that wasn't quite art and it wasn't quite advertising. But it was, I mean, we're advertising music, we're advertising product. But, but what, we, what we was, could, we had billboards. Yeah, but that was what was exciting was in, in some ways we didn't need galleries we we oh, had we had, had a record, record company that was paying for us and saying to us can you make us some more work yeah. so that we can do a series of adverts in magazines we need and a 48 sheet for this and location this and this and this and this and this constantly asking for us to create mm. stuff and it was a bit like well okay it, it was like a better place a better context to yeah. be in at the time we felt not that we we didn't want to 
be any part of that whole thing at all anyway. But you, it was interesting that you, I know you said, Tom, that the first time that you became really conscious that you were going to have to be working on record covers with kind of graphic designers, you had an immediate reaction, which is like, this is not going to happen. I can't work in this kind of producty way. Uh, so what you're saying is that you're, you're using the kind of, if you like, the platforms that are normally provided to very commercial activities to subvert that whole process effectively through... It wasn't, through it wasn't as conceptual as that. It, would, it, was, it was like wanting to be cool um, and wanting to, to adopt as much of a DIY aspect to it as we possibly could because the artists I admired were doing the same. Like Michael Stipe was very heavily involved mm. in the cover work for REM's records, even though he was mostly using photography. Mm. You know, David Bowie is very involved in the design of the sleeve artworks and so on. It's like, you know, a lot of artists I admire, musicians were also heavily involved in the art and I could not in all consciousness let that go it didn't feel right and 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 sort of doing a sort of shopping of other people's work and just saying oh I'll I'll use your work for this also felt deeply deeply wrong it's like if it hasn't got some of me in it I can't be a part of it sort of thing and that's why I called Dan because like uh, there's no way I can do this on my own because I'm not confident enough and I don't did literally call me we had like a one phone in the shared house I lived in and he phoned up and said do you want to have a go at doing a record cover? <laughs> I'm like, um, I don't know how to do a record cover, but I'll have a go. And this uh, was the Benz? This was, yeah. I well, guess, it yeah, was it first, was, yeah. Or the, the Maya and Lungy P. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right, yeah. Project. It was all the same thing, yeah. 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 And then your hair fell out. Then my hair fell out. Mm. Oh, that You're had fallen out just before. No, it was doing it while it was... Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think my eyebrows fell out while I... Yeah. <laughs> Stanley Anton, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having us. Grand. Bye-bye. The Crowflies will be at Tin Man Art at Cromwell Place in London in September. Exact dates are to be confirmed. Visit tinmanart.com to find out more. Coming up, Wayne McGregor on his collaboration with Carmen Herrera and Whistler's mother returns to Philadelphia. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. Egypt's Ministry of Antiquities has retracted a Dutch museum's licence for an archaeological dig for displaying images of Beyonce, Rihanna, Eddie Murphy and the rapper Nas imitating ancient Egyptian queens and pharaohs. The exhibition, called Kemet, Egypt in Hip-Hop, Jazz, Soul and Funk, runs at the National Museum of Antiquities in Leiden until September and explores ancient Egypt's influence on modern black musicians. Vim Vilan, the managing director of the museum, called out what he called anti-black sentiment after the Egyptian Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities wrote to his museum two weeks ago accusing it of falsifying history and Afrocentrism. The dig in Saqqara has been ongoing for almost half a century, Violin said, and while he accepted the Egyptian authorities' right to stop it, he said that doing so with an accusation of misrepresenting history was rubbing salt in the wound. A large chunk of oak preserved and stained black by its millennia in a layer of peat in Berkshire in southern England has been revealed as the oldest piece of carved wood in Britain. It dates to more than 6,000 years ago, making it 2,000 years older than Stonehenge. The metre-long piece of timber, with carvings that have been compared to designs on ancient pottery, was found on a building site in the village of Boxford. It's now been dated by experts from historic England, with scientists from Nottingham in the UK and Groningen in the Netherlands, to between 4,640 and 4605 BCE, making it 500 years older than the only other known example of late Mesolithic decoratively carved wood found in Wales. Francois Gio, an artist whose output spanned more than 80 years and defied simple categorisation and efforts to define her merely as a footnote in the story of her former lover Pablo Picasso, died on Tuesday in New York. She was 101. Her daughter, Aurelia Engel, said Gio had recently suffered from lung and heart problems. Gio was born in the Paris suburb of Noisy-sur-Seine in 1921 and had her first exhibition in the French capital in 1943. She then met Picasso, with whom she had a 10-year relationship, described in the 1964 memoir written with the journalist Carlton Lake called Life with Picasso. It attracted the ire of Picasso's supporters and eventually made her a heroic figure in feminist art history. But her primary vocation was as an artist. She's featured in countless exhibitions since her relationship with Picasso ended in the mid-1950s. You can read all these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS or Android. We'll be back after this. 
The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Christie's New York presents the second instalment of the Anne and Gordon Getty collection, Temple of Wings, until the 15th of June. The three-part auction series features fine and decorative arts from the Getty's landmark home in Barclay Hills. Highlights include works by Charles Robert Ashby, William Morris, Louis Comfort Tiffany and others. Proceeds benefit select arts and science organisations designated by Anne and Gordon Getty. Find out more at christies.com getty. Welcome back. Now, this week, the Royal Opera House in London premieres a new choreographic work for the Royal Ballet by Wayne McGregor, the company's resident choreographer. Called Untitled, it's inspired by the works of the Cuban-American artist Carmen Herrera, who died in 2022, aged 106, after working closely with McGregor on the set for the work. A third collaborator on the project is the Icelandic composer Anna Thorvaldsdottir, and costumes are designed by Burberry's chief creative officer Daniel Lee, with lighting design by Lucy Carter. I went to the Opera House to talk to Wayne McGregor about Herrera and this extraordinary new work. Wayne, when did you first meet Carmen Herrera? I met her in 2019. Nicholas Logsdale was an amazing gallerist, introduced me to her and I went to New York to see her in her studio, which was kind of incredible. She was 102 at that point and still in incredible kind of like physical shape and really working a lot, still working and really excited to potentially be doing this new work for the stage, which was her first and only work for the stage, as it turned out. And her work really only emerged into a wider public consciousness in the last sort of decade or two before her death, actually, didn't it? And were you sort of one of the people like me who were just like, where has this person come from? You know, because she's been making all this work for all these years and only now we're hearing about it. And it was an extraordinary revelation, it seemed to me. Totally. And this incredible kind of like commitment to work over all of that period. So, you know, continuing to work and not necessarily show continue to innovate and refine her visual language and her, her, her visual palette to completely be continuing to experiment in this amazing space that she had lived in since I think the 60s, but pretty much had been ignored. And it was such a revelation to see the work and then actually the range of the work, you know, the, the kind of the commitment to range and the, the commitment to um, really finding new forms of expression in a very kind of like beautifully refined grammar and syntax. Yeah, she spoke about a lifelong process of purification. And it seems to me that must be really fertile territory for dance. It is. I mean, I mean, the essential is is really important. And, you know, one of the things we're trying to do all the time with, with bodies is find kind of like true expression with as limited ornamentation as we can. And actually, one of the things even about classical ballet is it's, it's working towards a kind of a purity of execution, a purity of line to allow you then to channel expression and channel a directness and you know one of the things I've been very interested in in my career is is taking that kind of very formal language but then subverting it and, and using it maybe more asymmetrically or taking that line for a walk in a kind of a different direction and I think one of the amazing things about Carmen's work is that she balances this kind of like formalism with a really interesting sense of the precarious you know or the liminal you know that there's a sense in which you can look at the work and go oh that's just a green triangle on a white page or you can go actually just look where she's balanced that point that tip where it vanishes off into space just look at the pressure that she creates on a page where the line sits in a really unusual place precariously balanced against another form and it opens up for me all of these opportunities and spaces of perception where you can actually then start to feel something inside so meaning emerges from it and I love that I love that the, the kind of the primers these like kind of like really essential primers start to unlock meaning or unfold meaning in a really extraordinary way and that's why I love the painting and the the work so much. Tell us about the kind of balance of austerity and fullness in the work if you like. There's a really nice quote from Carmen about the black and white and the green and white works which is it's about yes and no and it seems to me there's a lot of yes and no in your production in, in these movements. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, I try to do that. I mean, I, I, I try to be as austere and kind of rigorous with the physical palette as Carmen had been with the work itself, you know. And, you know, one of the things about the work that Carmen made for the stage is that she's working on a huge canvas at a scale that she's not worked on before. You know, we sent her a, a little scale model of the Opera House and my second visit was her showing me the designs in the scale model, which was really extraordinary and moving objects around. And actually, we had several options. Actually, you can see the model here. It's just yeah, right it's next really nice. To me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but actually, you'll see that that green form, we ended up not using partly because of this thing about how much information can a space hold which is already 
quite rich with detail. We took the green structure out in a way to provide us with a little bit more openness to be able to read. So the essential, I think, is really important. But I think what she does in her work anyway is just direct attention. And I think what you're doing on a stage or on a canvas is trying to direct attention. And sometimes that attention is visual attention. So how is it that you can actually watch and read the image visually? But also because we're working in a life form which is also involving music, we're thinking about acoustic attention. And I think when, again, when you see Carmen's work, you have like a kind of a rhythmic sense of what's happening. You almost like hear the work, you don't just see it. There's a sense in which you can get a sense with where she places colour in relationship to line, what the sound of that image is. And all of that allows you to feel the work in a different way. And I I think that's what we were trying to get out of the the stage space. It, It is minimal, one might say. But at the same time, it really interrelates in a really extraordinary way with Anna's music, which in itself shares some of the properties of Carmen's work, but also offers all these extraordinary openings for possibility. Tell us more about Anna Thorvaldsdottir's music, because it really is quite something in, in the sense that there might have been a more automatic reflex to go for something which aligned perhaps more directly with the history of minimalism in music. But Anna's work is emphatically not like Steve Reich, for instance. No. It takes the work in a very different direction, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And I think that's one of the joys about putting artists together in making new work. You know, I guess one of my jobs as a choreographer is not just to make the movement, but actually to curate what the experience is. And that's partly how is it that you find really extraordinary people to work together. And I wanted to start with Carmen. I wanted Carmen pretty much to do what she wanted and for us to respond in a way which would create meaning from those spaces. But when I look at Carmen's paintings, I don't think about Steve Reich or a sense of serialism or Philip Glass. You know, what I actually think about is much more epic vistas. And Anna's work is really extraordinary because she takes kind of a sonic will which is unrecognisable in the orchestra often. The orchestra is a very different way of playing instruments, it's a very different way of experiencing sound. And what she does, she sets up a kind of a, a sonic proposition, a sonic idea, and then new ideas unfold from that, but from a very uh, minimal, very rigorous palette. And it's, it demands your attention in a very particular way. It demands you have to engage in a particular way. But for me, it's really moving. So, you know, it's not just texture moving. And the more that you listen and the more that you shift your attention around her acoustic spaces, the more is revealed about the nature of that music. And those two things are really analogous, you know, with Carmen, you know. So they, they felt like ideal kind of companions. And, you know, the other thing about Anna's music that I really love is the shift in colour and sometimes the relief of a little bit of melody you can catch on to. But it's transient. These musical spaces you can't quite catch hold of. And I find that about Carmen's work as well, that you can't say it is X, you know, it's not concrete in that way. What it demands is that you allow that today I'm experiencing it like this and tomorrow I'm experiencing it in a different way. And I think Anna's music does that. I think, you know, from our first rehearsal yesterday, we had our first rehearsal with orchestra and stage yesterday. And it was really an amazing kind of like fragile magic, you know, from things that you felt were quite concrete and very, very specific to things that were almost like demattering or dematerializing in front of you. And I think that's what we were really aiming for. How is it you can get a body, which is a very structured thing. We all have bodies. We all experience bodies one to another. We understand what a body does and is. How can you actually blur that body into something else so it becomes partly environmental and it becomes partly just acoustic in itself and you start to watch the rhythm of the body rather than the shape of the body. And these are like little plays that we're trying to work on all together. One of the things I was struck by, because I was lucky enough to be at that rehearsal, was these subtle correspondences between all three of the different elements where at one point you would actually see a dancer move absolutely rhythmically with Anna's music or they would align with the sets and also the fantastic costumes which form all kinds of new geometries and abstractions right the way through the work. To what extent was that a very careful and kind of really structured process or to what extent do you build it in as a kind of improvisatory move? Yeah, it's it's not at all improvisatory, so it's all completely structured. And I think that comes from the fact that we wanted to create this idea of slippage, but that slippage had to really align at the right time, you know. And, and obviously when, you know, 80 live musicians are playing live music, it's not exactly the same time. So we needed more than just anchors in the music. You know, Anna's music is very, very structured and very ordered, you know. It might sound sometimes as if it is improvised. And I love that about 
watching dance that feels as though it's improvised but actually the rigor in that compositional process is is absolute and i guess what we tried to do with the dancers rather than listening to the music and dancing to it was actually how can we time a somatic response which would be 56 seconds you know so that they could feel what 56 seconds was or we could feel when there's this surge in the music that you have this kind of arc to be able to move through so in a way they have to kind of picture time rather than count time which is a big challenge and a really beautiful experiment but I think they've done it really well they've really embodied this fantastic ability to use their instrument in that way and to dance differently to make real time decisions and we try to do that also with Lucy Carter who's the lighting designer that I've worked with for 30 years you know how is it that you work with a space like that so you almost make mini choreographic kind of kinetic lighting installations that also have shift and change and order and structure which allow you to sometimes see the Carmen work in relief in shadow that actually sometimes it allows you to create more mystery or slightly changes the tone of it so you know one of the things we try to do is take this green triangle and put it into a negative space and look black by the end so it looks like a kind of a, a tunnel that could be endless you know And all of these connect up with what the body is doing. So how is it that you create more negative space between the forms of the body on stage? So it's one of the most empty in terms of uh, bodies on stage piece that I've ever made. It's, you know, it's it's very like elemental. You know, it's only solos, duets. There's one kind of flooding on the stage at a certain point, but the rest is very empty. And then I guess the only thing I'd say about Daniel's costumes, this is Daniel Lee from Burberry. He created these extraordinary abstractions on the body where you read proportion in a totally different way what that allows you to do is see the body sometimes as pure sculpture you know they become sculptural forms and other times they become emotional forms but the geometries that kind of like coalesce and connect and obscure one another are super interesting and they remind us and you know something you want to do of of Carmen's e-structuras which are these kind of like architectural works which have spaces in between again often very strangely or precariously balanced that you can see through so there's a sense of solidity and there's a sense of transparency or an opening to another world and I think Daniel's costumes really help us create that with the bodies on stage. Uh, yeah, I'm really aware, looking at the model that you were talking about earlier on, you took that green form out, but actually you, you've you done it with the bodies, right? Exactly, and that's why. And so when all of the, the costumes came and we saw everything on stage, it felt like just one too many elements. And we thought it was better to kind of reduce down and make the body just operate like that rather than to try and repeat um, and I'm sure if Carmen was here that she should have done that first. Right, that's interesting. Um, I, I want to talk about abstraction because, of course, the minute you flood a stage with bodies or even occupy the stage with one body, it's figurative because the body is a figurative thing. <laughs> so how do you reconcile abstraction and the body? Are you attempting to create abstractions with the body? I think you can't create abstractions with the body because the job of the brain is to create meaning from things. And as human beings, when we see other humans, we can't help but read story or read relationship or read emotion. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're searching for. That's how we organise our world, right? But I think one thing that we can do is push the body into a kind of physicality which isn't normalised action, right? So so for me, normalised action is also a balletic vocabulary you recognise. So that might be pirouettes or, you know, tondus, things that you recognise, or it could be a hip-hop vocabulary, any physical vocabulary that you know. One of the challenges or exciting things to do is to push that body so it's beyond that, so that your kinesthetic sense while watching, your sense of where it sits in your own body, is altered or changed. You don't know how that feels, right? Because you've probably never done it. So it's a form of virtuosity in a way, but that allows you to do things with bodies. And certainly when bodies are in correlation or relationship with another body, where you can create kind of like architectural compositions with bodies, where bodies always always then have a degree of freedom that you couldn't do on your own. This creates a sense of distance in some way allows you to watch the body perhaps more abstractly so you can never really do that emotionally but I think there's something in the way in which if you work with language which is pushed further forward in a direction that's not recognized in your own body it creates a somatic sense which is unfamiliar and that unfamiliar allows you I think to open up other channels of experience which are exciting and um, sometimes challenging sometimes confronting Right. And you called this work Untitled, which is 
very knowing, I think, and, and, and I enjoy the knowingness, if you like. So, of course, it's a reference to Carmen's untitled works, but it's also about that austerity, that severity within the work as well. It's, it's about saying to the audience, please make meaning, right? Yeah. And also that's very unusual in dance because, you know, if you think about the history of dance, it's, first of all, you've got history of dance, which is very narratively based and narratively in a very particular form where you're saying this is the story and this is what you have to read. Are you reading it? And that's one of the nervousnesses for people about watching dance that they always feel that they're missing something. Then you had all those kind of amazing postmodern, you know, particularly American artists who are working in a different way going, well, watch dance or experience dance in a different way. Recently, I've been making a lot of work which has concrete meanings you know or multiple meanings we've been working on story ballets you know work which might be based on Virginia Woolf or Dante you know um, I've just worked with Margaret Atwood in in Canada on the Mahad Adam trilogy but these are very clear kind of like narrative anchors and I, I wanted just to offer the audience an opportunity to go let's not tell you anything about this work at all apart from the artists that are working on it I would love you to come completely fresh to a piece that hopefully you'll just experience in real time but that you will give it attention, that you will, you know, spend a little bit of time with it. You know, another one of my, my great favourite artists is Agnes Martin. And I, I realise in my experience of, of looking at Agnes Martin or feeling Agnes Martin, that it's so easy to dismiss it as, you know, just lines on a page or something. And it's only through repeat viewing and asking questions of it and entering into a dialogue with it that you start to get the magic and the richness and the transcendence of that work. And that's the same for Carmen. And hopefully it's going to be the same with this piece, that it's the repeat viewing and the seeking on behalf of the audience that's going to help us construct the meaning of it. That doesn't mean there's no meaning there. It means it's there to be revealed when you're in a, an open enough state to be able to process stuff. Lastly, I wanted to ask you about, there are great works, particularly I'm thinking of Merce Cunningham, where he corresponded directly with, minimalists like for instance Robert Morris and and also Frank Stella for instance yeah do you have to shut those off from your mind or can you refer back to them is, is there a kind of art historical process or, or dance historical process which happens through making works like this with Carmen yeah I mean I, I think there has to be I mean I, I, I always find it incredible that young choreographers have never seen any work of Merce for example you know they're working within sometimes a vacuum you know, which is bewildering to me because it might not be ballet, but actually that way of responding or working with other art forms in collaboration is really extraordinary. Merce is a big hero of mine, so unfortunately I, I can't ever shake him off my shoulder. <laughs> and actually, in a way, I was watching the other day and I, I, was, I was hoping if Merce had seen this work particularly, that actually he would really enjoy it because it also comes from him. It comes from his bravery in divorcing a way of watching dance which was always led by a very kind of like analog relationship with music when I'm thinking about Merce I'm thinking about his bravery in allowing the artists that he works with to really contribute within their own terms and not at the service of the thing that you think they should be making they're not just doing sets they're not just doing sets they're, they're provocations and part of the job of the experience of those artists working together is to find out you know, what are those potential correlations or interests in spaces between those objects and musical forms on stage? And allowing a freedom and a breadth of opportunity for those artists to really sit sometimes at the primary moment in experiencing the work. So it's not always the dance bit that is the bit that is the most important, you know, that actually all of these come in and out of focus at different times. And that's extraordinary. That's it. And I think Mercer's taught us how to watch in that way. And so um, I wouldn't ever want him to shake him off my, uh, my shoulder. Wayne, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Untitled is at the Royal Opera House in London until the 17th of June as part of the Triple Bill with Corabantic Games, a tribute to Leonard Bernstein by the Royal Ballet's artistic associate Christopher Wielden and a revival of Anastasia Act 3 by Wayne McGregor's late predecessor as artistic director of the Royal Ballet, Kenneth Macmillan. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. Few paintings ever created are better known than Arrangement in Graham Black, better known as Whistler's Mother by James Abbott McNeil Whistler. It's travelled from its home at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. It's been part of the French National Collection since 1891 to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the first time it's returned to Pennsylvania since it was shown there in 1881. It's part of an exhibition called The Artist's Mother, Whistler and Philadelphia, curated by Jenny Thompson. And I spoke to Jenny about 
the work and the show. Jenny, we're going to be talking about one of the most famous paintings in the world, but I'd like to go back to the very making of the painting, because is it right, in a way, Whistler only really painted his mother by accident? That's absolutely correct. He had another model who was scheduled to come to him, um, but she fell ill. And so he decided that he would paint his mother, who was living with him um, in London at the time. The sittings went incredibly well, um, surprisingly so for Whistler, who ordinarily would sometimes take a year and a half to two years to complete a portrait. But for his mother, the whole painting was done in about three months. Um, He obviously had her nearby. She would sit for him every single day, except for Sundays. She would not. She didn't feel that was appropriate to sit on on, uh, on Sundays. Right. And the relationship between them is worth talking about because she was effectively his sort of manager, his uh, studio assistant and so on. She did so much for him, right? She absolutely helped him with scheduling uh, models. She would give them tea. She would feed them lunch if they were there. On one occasion, we know that she actually went to get paints um, to assist him. Um, She would also keep his clients happy, particularly when they were encountering delays with finishing his work. So she was a great assistance to him. I think he also just relied on her running the household and um, and keeping things moving smoothly. Right. And did she turn a blind eye to or just not know about his wilder activities? I think it was a little bit of both. I suspect she knew that he was probably up to other more bohemian activities. Um, I think she certainly turned a blind eye to Joe Hiffernan and any of the, the women that he had relationships with. But I suspect she was also a very pious woman who you thought the best of her son and was going to pretend not to see other sides of his life. Okay, so it was first exhibited in the Royal Academy in London. Is it right? It almost didn't make it. It was almost rejected. That's exactly right. The jury was looking at it. They weren't certain that it should go in. And it was only when another artist, William Boxall, said, well, if you don't accept this, I'm going to resign um, from the Academy, that it really sort of forced them to, to take it on. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Is one of the reasons that it was problematic for that jury because of this insistence of Whistler to call it arrangement in grey and black rather than saying, this is a portrait of my mother? That's exactly right. So the title, Arrangement in Grey and Black, was so sort of problematic for so many audiences and, and so many individuals initially. He does include his mother as the subtitle. So for all of his you know, claims later on that, you know, to me, it's interesting as a portrait of my mother, but why does the public care about who the subject of the painting is? Right. Yeah, I love that story. He uses it to describe English folks' reaction to it, doesn't he? But actually, it seems to have been the pattern for audiences whenever they encountered this picture, that they just simply weren't going to accept Whistler's terms for viewing this work. Exactly. Now, they felt the subject was more important than than the way perhaps it had been painted. And that, of course, caused Whistler some sort of anxiety because he wanted it to be about the artistry, not about the subject. Right. So let's look at the composition then. Tell us about this arrangement of grey and black. What are we looking at? So we're looking at an older woman seated. We see her in a really strict profile. So she's looking off to the left. There's a wonderful dappled silk cloth, thought perhaps to be a kimono, that's hanging on the wall um, somewhat in front of her. She is dressed in black, Um, which, of course, is what Whistler's mother wore from 1849 when she became a widow onward. And we see on the wall two frames. Um, The one just behind her head is we we can't see the subject of that print, but we do see a print um, in front of her, which has been identified and we now recognize as one of Whistler's prints of London, a scene from the Thames. So it's, it's almost like he's bringing himself into the portrait as well. And rather wonderfully, you've got that alongside the portrait of his mother, right? Exactly. So we are using one of the copies of Black Lion Wharf that's in the Philadelphia Museum of Art collection, which is right next to the painting, which then helps to sort of draw out some of the details that we see in Whistler's work, because that that's one of, I think, the surprising aspects of encountering Whistler's mother in person, which is that details which in reproduction seem so crisp, when you encounter them on the surface, you realize how thinly worked aspects of the painting are and how he's almost rubbed the pigment into the canvas. 
And that the print is, is one of those places where that comes out. Absolutely. And, and that his technique really is remarkable, isn't it, actually? And this evenness in certain places and then just sudden jumps where there's a detail, which you see all over the place in the nocturne paintings and so on. But you can see how, to a certain extent, he is abstracting what he's seeing in this work. Exactly. And I think that comes out when you start to look at details like the chair legs, which are just barely roughed in. But then he does come back and he uses a great deal of brushwork, even bravura brushwork, um, in depicting her face and a little bit of the, the lace around her cuffs. And then the, the that kimono, the silk, has just wonderful dabs of paint with yellow and, and white in there. And of course, you've got the pink on her cheeks. So he uses thicker paint and more colourful paint and very specific and, and directed ways across the canvas. Now, the reason you're doing the show is because it was shown in Philadelphia in 1881. Tell us about that showing. How much of a kind of sensation was the painting at the time? Well, that's been one of the puzzling things for me. I've gone through all kinds of Philadelphia papers looking for conversation about Whistler and particularly about Whistler's mother. And there isn't a tremendous amount. Um, so it's it's sort of startling. Philadelphia audiences had heard a great deal about Whistler in the paper, but they hadn't had an opportunity to see his work until Whistler's mother was shown at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts in 1881. And in fact, Americans in general had only had their first opportunity to see his work in 1876 in Baltimore. So they knew of him by reputation, but hadn't had an opportunity to see his work um, in person. They paid a great deal more attention in the papers to the work of Thomas Aikens, who was a local artist. And it was only that really the art periodicals, particularly the perhaps New York-based art periodicals, started to pay more attention to the work. And they commented, as had London papers almost a decade earlier, that the title was a snub, a sort of slight to the woman who who posed for it and said, you know, you need to overlook that snub but and, and just enjoy the painting for its subject, not for its title. That's so fascinating. Curiously, his mother had died earlier in 1881. So do we have any record of Whistler's own feelings about this work being shown in his homeland in the year that she died? Is there any significance to the fact that it was in America at that time? I think the reason he sent it to the US, I suspect, was entirely because his mother had passed away earlier that year. She had hoped that the painting, I mean, she was very proud of the painting. She, she was very pleased with the outcome of it. And I think she felt very invested in it and collaborated with him on it. Is it right she called it my painting? Yes, she did. Absolutely. <laughs> She had hoped that the portrait would be shown in Philadelphia in 1876 as part of the Centennial Exposition, so a great World's Fair held in, in Philadelphia, and it, it wasn't available at that time. So I think Whistler regretted that it, he hadn't allowed it to be seen in the U.S. during his mother's lifetime. And so when he was approached by Anna Lee Merritt, who was a Philadelphia painter who was living abroad but was working on behalf of the Pennsylvania Academy to organize an exhibition of American artists who were living abroad. I think he proposed, she never actually asked for Whistler's mother, but he proposed that he would send the portrait to Philadelphia. Right. And it was only much later, in fact, wasn't it, that, that it became a kind of American icon. It's become this icon across the world, of course. But it was a much later tour of the States in which suddenly it started gaining a significance, which has led to all sorts of things, including statues and, and a, a direct association with motherhood. Exactly. So I think once it's, the painting is acquired by the French government in 1891, it begins to grow in popularity. Um, but it's really this remarkable two-year tour that it makes in the U.S. Um, from 1932 to 34, which makes it become this extraordinary icon. And there's this wonderful thing that Alfred Barr, the founder of the Museum of Modern Art, does, which is make a kind of diagram of this painting, as Whistler would have loved, I'm sure, as a kind of abstraction, so that it really does enter the sort of canon of the kind of American perceptions of modern art at that time too, right? Right, absolutely. No, when Barth makes a diagram of the painting, he's sort of bringing it back to its formal qualities, which, of course, Whistler would have appreciated so much. You know, of course, 
when he borrowed the painting, I think he suspected that it would become very popular. He was under quite a deal of pressure to make the Museum of Modern Art sustainable and to build an endowment for the museum. And so it was a kind of almost a desperate measure to borrow Whistler's mother along with Grant Wood's American Gothic and to create a kind of trajectory of American art that would bring it really up to the contemporary moment. And I think it surpassed even his wildest expectations um, for the popularity of the painting. And then it became a kind of wonderful, very inspiring moment for Americans as it toured the country in the midst of the Great Depression. And it, it sort of seemed that apparently Americans needed their mother at that moment. And she becomes a kind of universal mother as she travels across, you know, all the way to the West Coast um, and then back to New York. Now, in your exhibition, you're showing it alongside other depictions of mothers, and we don't have time to go into all of them here, but I thought it would be really nice actually to focus on one of them, which is this extraordinary painting by Henry Osawa Tanner, who's an African-American artist. But tell us more about that, because it's, it's an extraordinary story as well as a great work. So Tanner is one of the artists who had seen Whistler's mother when it was shown in Philadelphia in 1881. He doesn't respond immediately to it. Um, in fact, he was never an artist who did much copying of other artists. In fact, I believe that the portrait of the artist's mother that he does is the only time he ever evokes another artist. But Tanner had trained at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. He was a student in Philadelphia when Whistler's mother was, was shown there. He obviously paid a great deal of attention to it. But it was only 16 years later when he is on a rare trip back to the U.S. He, he was living in Paris at the time that he visits his parents in Kansas City. He makes two very conventional bus-length portraits of his parents and then embarks on a second portrait of his mother, which is the one that sort of evokes Whistler's mother. And he does it in a very, I think, knowing way. In the upper left corner of the painting, you see the frame of a print, which is sort of perhaps the most telling quotation of Whistler's mother. He shows his own mother in profile, but she's in a rocking chair. She's dressed in a blue gown. There's this remarkable light shining on her face, and there's a, a tremendous warmth to the palette. So he's not gone with blacks and grays, but he's chosen these warmer browns. So he's very much reinterpreting Whistler, but using it on his own terms. Tanner, as it's been commented, was an artist whose entire career and his entire life in some respects was about navigating color relationships. So I think there's something so telling about the fact that he takes on Whistler in terms of the composition and the subject, but brings his own palette to it and his own sort of sense of movement to this rocking chair and the fan, so the light-colored shawl that trails off of the back of, of her chair. But the Tanner family was remarkably um, well-connected. They were really at the, the heart of black intellectual life in the U.S., both in Philadelphia and Kansas City, Washington, D.C., and elsewhere. So they would not have been lost on this comparison with Whistler. It was only a year after the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled in Plessy versus Ferguson had upheld racial segregation in the United States and reaffirming separate but equal facilities and opportunities for black and white citizens. So I think this is something of a, it's been called a gentle intellectual joke in the Tanner family, um, that taking on the Whistler's mother portrait, but doing it at a moment when Tanner had achieved um, great recognition in his own career. He was well established in Paris the French state had just acquired his painting of the resurrection of Lazarus. And so he had achieved the same mark of honor and privilege that Whistler had gotten six years earlier when Whistler's mother was acquired by the French state. Jenny, thank you so much for telling us about it. Thank you. The artist's mother, Whistler and Philadelphia, is at the Philadelphia Museum of Art from the 10th of June until the 29th of October. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Julie Mihauska and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Tom and Stanley, Wayne and Jenny. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now.
The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.